0: Coming up on Harvard Chan this week in health, a guide to buying insurance through Obamacare.
1: I would think the biggest thing to think about is is how comfortable
0: you are with risk. As open enrollment begins, one expert offers advice for finding the best health care plan for you and your family. Plus, the new research showing how Medicaid expansion affects the way people use the health care system. Hello and welcome to Harvard Chan This Week in Health. It's Thursday, October 27, 2016, and I'm Amy Montemiro.
2: And I'm Noah Levitt. We'll get to those stories in a few minutes, but first a quick roundup of some of the top health stories this week.
0: New research from the American Cancer Society finds that more than a quarter of U.S. cancer deaths are tied to smoking.
2: According to the study published in JAMA Internal Medicine, 167,000 cancer deaths in 2014, about 29% of all cancer deaths that year, were tied to smoking. Researchers analyzed state-specific government data on smoking rates and deaths from about a dozen smoking-related cancers, such as lung, throat, and stomach cancer.
0: There were some significant regional differences in death rates, especially in the South, where smoking is more common and tobacco control policies are less strict. The highest rate of death were among men in Arkansas, where 40% of cancer deaths were linked to smoking. The death rate in Utah was the lowest, at about 22%.
2: In other news, the American Academy of Pediatrics is updating recommendations on screen time for children. Doctors had previously recommended no screen time at all for children younger than two, but pediatricians are now making an exception for video chatting, meaning that it's okay for babies to FaceTime or Skype with distant family members. Experts say that can help build relationships early in life. For older children and teens, doctors say it's okay for them to do some socializing, learning, and playing online, But they still need to put down the devices to sleep, exercise, eat, and engage in offline activities. One of the authors of the new recommendations tells USA Today that electronic devices such as computers, phones, and tablets are not, quote, evil, but do need to be balanced with other activities.
0: More than half of Americans with mental health issues are not receiving the treatment they need. That's according to a new report from the nonprofit advocacy group Mental Health America. The organization found that mental health care was worse in Nevada where more than 67% of adults with mental illness don't receive treatment. And more than 71% of teens with major depression are not receiving care. A major issue, according to the report, is a lack of mental health care workers. In Alabama, for example, there is just one mental health worker for every 1,200
2: people. If you're planning to buy health care through the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare, open enrollment begins November 1st and runs through January 31st.
0: If it's your first time buying insurance through the health insurance exchange, it can be a little daunting. So we sat down with Kathy Schwartz, professor of health policy and economics at the Harvard Chan School, to get some advice on choosing a plan.
2: As you've probably heard in the last week, there's a lot of talk about rising premiums this year under Obamacare. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But first, we asked Swartz to give us some background on who is likely to need to get coverage through the health insurance exchange. The largest number are people who have jobs
1: and their employer does not sponsor health insurance where they work. Um, so a lot of people who are work for small firms or maybe are self-employed themselves or they work on a contract basis. So they they work at some place, but they're not employees of that place Um and there are a lot of people who work on contract like that. They all need to be covered by health insurance, or they pay a tax penalty when they file their income taxes. A lot of people who re- have remained uninsured over these last couple of years since the marketplace has opened, um, a disproportionate share of them are younger adults, so anywhere between 18 and, say, 35 or 40. So the um, administration is making a big push this year to point out to younger adults that you don't want to face these risks of finding out at age 30 that you have cancer or that you're in a car accident or you have a sporting event accident. Um, And then you put either your own family or your parents at risk for the costs of the care. And by having more younger, healthy people in these plans, That will prevent the premiums from going up quite as rapidly as they have these last two years where, you know, in fairness, the insurance companies really had no idea who would, nobody had a really good idea of who would enroll. Um, And so some of these large increases in premiums that people have been reading about have come about largely because um, there weren't as many younger people who are eligible for premium subsidies
2: enrolling in these plans. And as Swartz mentioned, premiums for insurance plans are rising this year. So for some background, under Obamacare, there are four levels of plans that are offered. Bronze, silver, gold, and platinum. All offer different levels of coverage and costs for patients.
0: The silver plans typically cover 70% of a patient's expenses and are considered the benchmark plan. Premiums for those plans will rise an average of 22%.
2: But Swartz says many people will be shielded from these price increases.
0: If they have incomes
1: below 400% of the poverty level and their incomes are above the Medicaid eligibility ceiling, um, they will be getting these premium tax credit subsidies.
2: And a quick aside here that this can cover a wide range of incomes depending on your state, from just around $47,000 for an individual to $130,000 a year for a family of six. We'll actually have a link to a tool on our website HSPH.ma/thisweekinhealth to help you calculate your subsidy eligibility. Now back to our conversation with Kathy Sports.
1: So, even though people talk about, you know, premiums going up by ten percent, fifteen percent, twenty percent, or in a few cases, closer to fifty percent, um, people need to remember who are eligible for these premium tax credit subsidies that uh, they will not be paying all of that additional cost, that a lot of that will be subsidized by these subsidies that come for premiums.
2: There are so many different kinds of plans, so I guess, what are are the major plans that people would be shopping for, and what are some of the key differences between them?
1: The major plans that are out there in most states are HMOs, which are really managed care plans, or, high deductible plans which are generally called point-of-service, that's the POS. Those are the two major types of um, plans that are being offered in most states. One thing that people should remember is that um, the marketplace for where they would get health insurance is not their entire state. It's very much uh, based on the region where they live. And so premiums that they might be facing say, if they were in the Boston metropolitan area, are not the premiums they would be facing if they lived in the western part of Massachusetts, which is mountainous and much more rural. The main thing that any consumer looking to or shopping for a plan really should be looking at is whether they get a plan that has a relatively high deductible, so something that might be $2,000 per person or maybe above $5,000 for a family, versus a plan which would be more likely to be a managed care plan that has a sort of what was being called a limited or a narrow provider network, which means that they would have a smaller number of physicians in hospitals and diagnostic testing areas um, that they could go to that would be in-network. And so the cost to them, out-of-pocket cost to them, would be much lower than if they went to somebody who is not part of this limited provider network. So they... Most consumers right now are probably hearing about whether do you face a plan that has a high deductible or do you face a plan that has a limit on the numbers and types of providers, doctors, nurses, hospitals, diagnostic testing centers that they can go
2: to. We hear a lot about these high-deductible plans. So, I mean, could you explain in a little more detail about what a high-deductible plan is? And also, I mean, are there situations where that is the best option for someone? This
1: is a really great question because we hear a lot about these high-deductible plans because a lot of employers are offering them. And in the employer-sponsored health plans, they the, anybody who chooses a high-deductible health plan is probably also getting – Um, a health savings account that goes with it, where the employer may put money into that. And that is very different from what are known as these high deductible health plans that are available in the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare marketplaces. In the marketplaces under the Affordable Care Act, there is no health savings account that goes with it, unless somebody somehow has money to do that, but then they're not likely to be getting a um, premium tax credit subsidy. So that means that if you choose a high-deductible health plan in the Obamacare marketplaces, you are responsible for the first, let's say you have a deductible of $3,000. You're responsible for the first $3,000 worth of your medical expenses before the insurance will pay anything. And then there's probably um, either some co-payments or a coinsurance rate, generally about 20%, that the person still would be paying out-of-pocket until they hit the maximum allowed out-of-pocket spending per year. Somebody who might want this plan, type of plan with a high deductible, is probably somebody who is either very healthy and doesn't expect to have um, high medical expenses or even more than maybe at most one visit to a doctor um, during a year. And so that they're trading off um, having a very low premium, essentially. It's possible that if you're very, very, very sick, you might say, okay, I'll still choose this high deductible plan because I will have a wider range of physicians and hospitals I can go to. And I know that my medical expenses are going to be a lot larger than that $3,000 deductible. So maybe they would decide that way. But generally, the people choosing high-deductible health plans are, are healthy and don't expect to go to a doctor at all during the year.
2: If you're someone who has maybe a chronic condition, you have a lot of prescription drugs, or you know you're having a major surgery coming in the next year, I guess, how, how would you kind of manage those considerations?
1: Well, again, I think it depends on your own um, family financial circumstances. You might still choose a high-deductible plan of 3000 maybe even up to $5,000, knowing that you could pay that, and then um, you could still go to whatever surgeon you wanted to. On the other hand, um, if you don't have that kind of money, you really should not be choosing a plan with a high deductible. You should be choosing a straight HMO, um, paying more in premiums to be able to have a choice of physicians and hospitals, and know really what your costs will be out of pocket, and you can limit them. Um, It's possible that if you are expecting to have surgery and the surgeon or maybe some specialist that you're seeing is in a limited provider network for a point of service kind of managed care plan, it's possible that that would be a good fit too. But um, you should understand that the risk you're running with a limited provider network kind of plan is that that you may find yourself in a surgery where there could be um, an assistant, for example, who's not part of the network, and then you are responsible for the full costs of that person.
2: In the example you gave, I could choose a surgeon that's in my network, but if someone else in the operating room, you know, the anesthesiologist, is out of network, you would then bear the brunt of that?
1: Yes, and that, um, you know, nobody uh, who was setting these plans or who was regulating the Affordable Care Act marketplaces was anticipating that. Um, but understand this was also going on in the employer-sponsored insurance plans, too. It's not just what was going on in these marketplace plans. Um, and so there's been a lot of pushback on that. And my own sense is that um, there's a little bit less of that. But you need to ask a question about, is the anesthesiologist covered by my plan? Is the assistant covered by my plan? What kinds of costs am I likely to be liable for? And, and that requires that you to be really pushy with your surgeon and ask those questions.
2: Are there any other factors that people should be weighing as they consider a health insurance plan? I
1: would think the biggest thing to think about is, is how comfortable you are with risk. Um, that is, you may decide that you need a lower premium just because you just don't have enough money to pay more than one of these limited provider network plans or a high deductible plan is um, priced at. And that's fine, but just be aware that then you could face significant out-of-pocket costs. There are real trade-offs all the time. And I think as long as somebody is healthy, especially if they're young, um, the major things to be worried about there is that you could be in a car accident or some kind of sporting event like skiing accident. And so if you ski a lot or if you play rugby a lot and you could get injured, think hard about the risk um, that you or your family is being put at. If you have these unexpected costs because suddenly you break a leg in a terrible way and you need surgery, that's going to be costly. The prescription drugs issue is, is a real issue because there um, there are a lot of newer drugs that are coming on the market right now that are coming in at higher prices. There's increasing pushback, um, especially coming from Medicare. And so I think we're going to have to watch that play out over this next year or two of what kinds of cost reductions come about. Um, That's not going to come just from people who are covered by insurance through these marketplace plans, but more likely probably Medicare and the employer-sponsored plans.
2: That was Kathy Schwartz offering her perspective on purchasing health insurance under the Affordable Care Act.
0: Schwartz says one issue she's watching closely would be Medicaid expansion after the November 8th presidential election.
2: 19 states have still not chosen to expand Medicaid eligibility for low-income adults, which is permitted under the Affordable Care Act. That includes Texas and Florida, which have large numbers of uninsured people whose incomes are currently too high to qualify for Medicaid. In those two states alone, more than a million people would gain coverage with a minimal cost to the states. According to Swartz, states will initially pay 5% of the cost of covering the newly insured, with that eventually increasing to 10% by 2020.
0: And now we're going to take a look at some new research that's shedding light on how expanded Medicaid eligibility actually influences how people use the healthcare system.
2: A study led by Kate Baker, C. Boyd and Gray Professor of Health Economics at Harvard Chan School, and Amy Finkelstein, the John and Jenny S. McDonald Professor of Economics at MIT, looked at new evidence from the Oregon Health Insurance Experiment. When that state expanded Medicaid in 2008, it had so many applicants that it used a lottery to determine coverage, creating a unique, randomized, controlled evaluation of the effects of Medicaid expansion.
0: What Baker and Finkelstein found is that visits to hospital emergency departments jumped by 40%. And that increase persisted for at least two years. A key finding, the newly insured were not more likely to substitute doctor office visits for trips to the emergency department. Rather, Baker says, that Medicaid makes it more likely that people will use both types of care.
3: People weren't more likely to go to the doctor or more likely to go to the emergency department. They were more likely to go to the doctor and the emergency department. So insurance made all sorts of healthcare more affordable and people used lots of different kinds of care. Medicaid makes all sorts of care more affordable. It's not surprising that people use the emergency department when it is free when they have Medicaid and very expensive when they're uninsured. I also think that the fact that the doctor's office and Medicaid and emergency department use were more complementary rather than more substitutable was not all that surprising to physicians. We had lots of examples of people calling up their primary care doctor with a health concern, having the primary care doctor refer them to the emergency department and following up on that when they had insurance. So physicians didn't seem all that surprised and economists didn't seem all that surprised, but I think it might have been surprising to a lot of policy analysts.
0: Baker and Finkelstein also found that expanded Medicaid coverage improved financial security, improved self-reported health, and reduced rates of depression among those who received coverage.
2: Baker says these findings come at an important time. As we mentioned earlier, 19 states are now debating expanding Medicaid. She says these conversations are often emotional and focus on personal experiences regarding healthcare.
0: But Baker says anecdotes don't often tell the whole story and that it's important to look at the solid evidence that clearly shows the impact of expanded coverage.
3: We found that on average, people use the emergency department 40% more. That doesn't mean that every single person use the emergency department 40% more. Some people may have used it more and some people may have used it less. You can always find examples of people whose experiences aren't typical of all of the people who gained access to insurance, which is why it's so important to gauge the experiences of the whole population that got insurance to get a sense of what expanding Medicaid is going to do system-wide. We found a lot of examples of anecdotes that either matched what we found overall, or were completely contradictory to the story that we found overall. And all of those anecdotes are true. People are relating experiences that were real. It's just that not everyone's experience is typical and you don't get a sense of the typical overall prevailing experience until you put together information from thousands of people. So it's really important to do that. That doesn't mean we can't learn a lot in terms of individual experiences about context and humanize the numbers that we see. And I think that that's vitally important, but it's no substitute for robust scientific evidence.
0: So what's the takeaway for the 19 states debating expanded Medicaid eligibility?
2: Baker says it's simple. Expanded coverage will increase healthcare care use.
3: It would be nice if expanding health insurance reduced health care spending and improved health. That would be a win-win. Insurance gives people access to care they didn't have before, which is really beneficial to their health, but it doesn't come free. And so states considering expanding need to consider what's going to happen to health care resources and to total spending. And they should be doing that with real facts on hand rather than hope.
2: And if you're interested in learning more about the impact of expanding Medicaid, Baker Finkelstein and their team of researchers have put together an interactive tool that allows you to see whether personal experiences match the overall effect of the Oregon Health Insurance experiment. If you want to check that out, we'll have a link on our website, hsph.me thisweekinhealth.
0: And that's all for this week's episode. I'm Amy Montemiro.
2: And I have Noah Levitt, a reminder that you can always find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher.